Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Inside the Asperger's Studios. Today on the show, I'm joined with Melissa, who is a behavioral analyst who helps those find ABA agencies and therapists that are right for them. So sit back, relax, and grab your favorite beverage, and I'll see you on the other side. See you there. Welcome back to another episode of Inside the Asperger Studios. Today, I'm joined with Melissa, who is a behavioral analyst working with ABA. Welcome to the show, Melissa. Hi, thank you for having me. So why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself and we'll get going. Well, um, I became a board certified behavior analyst um, back when my son was two years old and diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. Um I was told by professionals that he would never speak and would rely on me for the rest of his life. And I decided that um, we weren't going to accept that. He was going to have a, a happy, healthy life, no matter what that looked like, but I was going to do whatever I could to to help him. Um, at the time I was teaching. And um, so throughout his journey, I got into ABA, I became an RBT, and then I um, became a board certified behavior analyst. And now I own my own company called Bloom Health, where I help parents kind of do the same thing, like decide that they are going to do the best thing that they can for their child and receive adequate education and, and training and information. So. All right. Now, why do you feel ABA has gotten such a bad rap? Is it because people are parroting what they hear and not doing their own research or is it fair? Honestly, it's a little fair. <laughs> it is a little fair. Um, <clears throat> ABA can be an incredible resource and a great tool just because of understanding how behavior works, especially for an individual who is nonverbal and, and can't um, understand contingencies and also can't explain contingencies well. However, um, there are there is a history of ABA being misused and um, kind of being in the attitude of normalizing uh, people mm -hmm. on the spectrum, um, also using procedures that aren't ethical. Um, doesn't in itself make ABA a bad thing. The principles of ABA are pretty solid, but depending on the practitioner, depending on, um, you know, the the practices put into place, um, one, of, one of my big messages and a, a guide that I give out is how to kind of spot if an ABA company mm -hmm. is is misusing their resources um, and kind of how to navigate the conversation and make sure that your child is getting um, the the treatment that they deserve. And for those out there who are not sure, what can you explain what ABA is? ABA is Applied Behavioral Analysis, and it was um, constructed over time as um, a way of teaching skills to a child who may not have verbal skills or an, even an adult who may not have verbal skills. So it it takes 
you know, very critical skills for a child or a person to be able to thrive independently and breaks them down and teaches them in a way that's going to make sense to somebody who may not be able to understand instructions the way that a person with a lot of language would, would understand them. So I think another thing that, um, gives it a bad rep is that it is very much about, you know, repetition, reinforcement, um, and people look at that and, and they think, you know, that, that looks very daunting. It looks like a lot of work, but, um, if it's done right, it's done through lots of play opportunities, lots of encouragement, um, and natural environment. So a child would be learning in the environment that they would already be in instead of seated at a table and, and drilling out skills all day. So they would be learning in their homes instead of inside a... Um, like a center. I, I personally, you know, there there are ABA companies that do both. There's one, there's some that do center-based programming and there's some that do, um, you know, home-based. I would recommend, you know, if a child is most likely needing most of their help at home, like with self-care, adaptive skills, lots of language, then the home is usually the best setting. A center is good if there's like socialization opportunities there, but again, only if done right. I'm very hesitant on center-based programs just because um, it tends to teach the child how to do things in that location, in that center, instead mm-hmm. of everywhere where they would naturally use it. I totally, I totally agree with you on that because I feel it's more important to learn in your own environment than somewhere else. Yes, because you have that comfort of your home and you don't you kick out that fear of, oh, I'm somewhere new and I got to learn all this where I'm in my comfort. I can feel a little bit more at ease and relaxed. Right. And honestly, at home, it's it's better because I learned a lot by participating in my son's therapy and and being there and seeing what was going on so that I kind of knew what was being worked on and I knew to, how to carry it out at home too. So my parenting changed a lot. You know, I, the way I reacted to certain attempts of communication and how I, you know, slowly encouraged but didn't expect, you know, behaviors that may not have been appropriate for his age range. Like sometimes, you know, people expect their kids to behave perfectly and it's, it's just not realistic for any child, let alone one that, you know, mm-hmm. maybe dealing with sensory issues or maybe having to take in the environment in a very different way. So I loved, I loved in home because not only was it more natural for the child, but then I could see what was happening and I could learn. You know, what would you say to those who who have had bad experiences with ABA? How would you get them to like reevaluate and find a better ABA therapist? Honestly, you know, if if someone has experienced a bad ABA um, encounter, that's going to be very hard for that person to get over. And I can 100% understand that. So I'm. I wouldn't necessarily say, you know, 
come back to ABA, give it another chance, because that that might be a big ask for someone. Mm -hmm. But what I would say is educate yourself on what ABA is supposed to be and that systematic approach to learning new skills and and learn how to how to implement some of the, the core foundational principles in the home and If you get like really well-versed in that, then if you do decide that you want to try ABA again in the future, then you know what the red flags are and you know what the green flags are, like when something is going very well. I think it's more um, being equipped to evaluate than it is like saying, no, definitely, you know, come back. It it might not even be right for the family. Sometimes Mm -hmm. families are approved and it's just not the right approach for them. All right. What is a typical day like for you? Oh, for me? <laughs> uh, well, um, <clears throat> I I have a 10-year-old on the spectrum, but then I also have a, a three-month-old baby. So oh. every day is a little different. <laughs> but what I do is, um, you know, I create trainings for parents who maybe can't, like, they might be on a wait list for services and they need to know how to implement some ABA practices at home and and not traditional ABA therapy, but natural environment, you know, how to parent with, with the, like the mechanics of behavior in mind. So, you know, you know, how behavior works, how to teach new skills for someone who might not be verbal. I help parents with that. So I do direct one-to-one um, calls with that. I also create a lot of resources that are just free for parents so that they can, you know, get educated, get, you know, some of the help that they need if they, if they can't do one-to-one. And then I also do group trainings as well. So a big one, um, like I mentioned, I do have a guide out at this point of the top 10, kind of my, my top 10 red flags of an ABA program. And if you are looking for something that has that same behavioral approach, you know, we offer those services without you having to be in an ABA program because then it gets in with insurance, you know, you never know what you're going to be approved for. And then um, I honestly, and my heart of hearts do believe that many ABA programs don't go at it trying to be detrimental to someone, but they struggle with staff shortages and they struggle with, all kinds of things that make decision-making very hard to be for the benefit of children. So I like to help parents, like you learn how to do these things at home Mm -hmm. with your child so that my day could look like, you know, back-to-back direct with clients. It could look like I'm doing groups and lives and just offering those education materials to people. And then do you have an age range you work with? I don't necessarily, I specialize in early childhood, you know, so from like about a year old to eight years old, that's, that's where, you know, the early intervention process happens. Um, But ABA principles could be used for everybody. I mean, there are even some that I use for myself, like on myself, just to teach myself new (laughs) habits and new behaviors. So um, no age range, but I will say that most of the people that I work with are are younger. Now, is it mostly parents or do you have those who are older on the spectrum that come to you and say, listen, I need help. Can you help me? 
Yeah, I've yet to have someone who is an adult approach me as a as an individual. It's mostly parents, or um, I even do like some training resources for teachers um, that may have children on the spectrum in their classroom and just need to know how to be more conscientious of what that person might need. Um, but I, I mean, I would love to work with individuals who are. Yeah, just like I would like help with this particular. I have this goal for myself that I don't know how to reach. Um, a lot of what ABA could be used for is just mm-hmm. small attainable goals, working up to a big, a big one. So. Now, how do you think we can change the minds of people about ABA? I mean, we know there's fear in their mind about it because of what they've read. Can we change? How can we change that? get the fear out of them and make them understand there are good ABA programs out there. Uh, You know, again, I think educating them and helping them to be able to evaluate what's going to make a good program um, and what's not, you know, I was just talking to a client of mine um, earlier today and she said, you know, this ABA company wants to have someone with me because my child struggles with running away and they want to have the therapist with me when I go out like to the store and to in different places to help work through those things. And that's a sign of a really good program. Like someone that's like, here's what your needs are. Let me help you achieve that. Um, so I think it's understanding what ABA should be doing. And and if you know that ABA is meant to be serving your family and supporting your family, not the other way around where they're telling you, you need to be doing this, this, and this, and it's not appropriate for your family. Um, I think fear comes from a lack of understanding and knowing and if you know about something and what it's meant to look like, there's no reason to fear it. And you can choose a program that actually works for you. Now, would you say that ABA has improved over time? I would. Yeah, I would. Um, I've been a part of a few different companies at this point. Each one, you know, a little bit more progressive and a little bit more in understanding of individual client needs instead of, you know, trying to blanket treatment. Um, and I do know that there there is a lot of call for reform, you know, by other BCBAs as well. Um, just just to really put our 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 service in check and make sure that you know we're we're acting in the best interest of our families and our clients. So I do think it has changed quite a bit over time. And I, you know, with the development of social media, people are really able to get their their words out there, and it's it's making a lot of progress. No, what are some of the biggest worries that parents have come to you about with their kid? Um, a big one is communication skills. If a child's nonverbal, um, that is a big one. You know, how do I get, how do I know what my child needs if something happens to them? What, like, how do I know? Um, so we, uh, communication is almost always, you know, a big, a big one. Um, another thing that, is a huge part of ABA services and I get all the time is safety skills, like knowing not to run away if you're out somewhere or um, if you do engage in self-stimulatory behavior, making sure that it's not something that could potentially be harmful. I've worked with a client who um, their self-stimulatory behavior was grinding their teeth, which could end up 
fracturing jaw and, mm. and, you know, if you <laughs> just some, uh-huh. making sure that, you know, you're getting that stimulation that you need, but mm-hmm. in a way that's not going to harm yourself over time. So I think those are probably my two most common, um, protocols is learning safe self-stimulatory self stimulatory behavior and increasing communication. Yeah. The reason I laughed is I, I tend to grind my teeth a lot. I mean, it's, it's almost involuntary at times. It's either when I'm stressed or when I'm anxious or nervous or upset. I yep. just wind up grinding my teeth and it's come to the point where I went to a new dentist and after they look at my x-rays, they go to me, you, you grind your teeth, don't you? I'm like, you, you're like, you need a bite plate. I'm thinking a bite plate's not going to help if I grind my teeth all the time. Exactly. That just helps at one point of the day. It doesn't help the rest. Yeah. Um, uh, has ABA helped your son at all? A lot. We were very blessed in the fact that even though I didn't really know much about it, he had um, his first BCBA was incredible. And it was a very rare opportunity because the BCBA would write the treatment plans and he'd be the one to come to the house and actually work with him. So there was no like lost in translation. Like he came up with the ideas and he put them into place. A lot of times if you have to train technicians, it's, it's a little bit more difficult, but um, this BCBA really knew uh, my son and what he needed and how to interact with them and how to get him interested in playing, you know, cooperatively. And um, it really, really helped. I just saw my son because my son had been in speech and OT and all these other therapies and they weren't going well at all, but mm-hmm. he, they weren't going well because he hadn't learned the value of sitting with a person and learning from them. He just hadn't learned that skill yet. And a lot of times that's like barrier number one. And if you're not getting very far in therapies, that's probably like because you just haven't learned the value of sitting with them and learning from them. And once we were able to um, to connect with my son in, in that way, he really took off. I mean, I was told he'd never talk and now he's 10 years old and hosts his own YouTube channel and (laughs) yeah, better, better language skills than even I have. So, um, boy, it it couldn't have been, um, a more different outcome than what I was told. Now, how is he handling school and everything with everything going on? He's doing very well. Um, He very much enjoys school. He actually today just, um, he wanted to join the school's running club. So he started that. He, He started in a kind of a combined special needs classroom. And now he's just, he's mainstream and he's functioning very well. And he has friends that come over to the house and want to play with him and just very happy kid. He's a very happy little guy. Now, what have you learned yourself about the autism community coming into it as an adult with a son who's on the spectrum? Well, I've learned, um, one, that all of us have, like, being a part of the diagnostic process and seeing the characteristics, um, you know, there are many characteristics that even I have that are neurodivergent and possibly Mm -hmm. spectrum characteristics. So 
we all can really learn. Um, we can really learn how to be sensitive and caring toward one another because it's really not just you either have this label or you don't. It's more like at what what level do you have the characteristics? And and if so, wherever you're at, how do you best learn? It's really made me um, kind of see every person, whether they're on the spectrum or not, as their own kind of human being. Like they, they are their own person and they're going to learn in their own way. And it's just really increased like my just kind of love for all that is unique. You know, you are going to learn in your very own specific way and have your specific characteristics. And that's so cool. Like you don't have to fit into any kind of in stigma or anything that is normal because there really is no normal. Everybody has something. Everybody stims in some mm. way. Everyone does. And learning more about these things really just it it opened up my horizons quite a bit and taught me a lot about myself and the characteristics that I have. Now, have you gotten any grief from the community about you going being in, into ABA? Because I know they frown upon it. Um, at some points, yes. Um, I I have not very much. I've been I've been pretty blessed. I know that as I continue on, and you know, I'm active on social media, and I I do have a following there, and especially with my company, like people might think, oh, you're you're you know trying to promote ABA, but I I'm really not. You know, having been in the ABA community, I can honestly say that I don't feel that it's always the best option for everybody. Yeah, I have those letters that can attach to my name as a BCBA, but that just makes me more conscientious of you know, who needs something like that and who doesn't. So um, I'm very careful. You know, I try to, I don't promote ABA to everybody and I don't say, you know, ABA is the best thing on the planet because for everyone, it's, it's not like for some people, it's great. It worked well for my son, um, but it was because of the way it was done. So anytime someone does have a negative comment about ABA, I, I'm usually just very much like, I'm really sorry that happened and um, that you, that you have this opinion on it. And I'd love to hear more of why that is, you know, what, what are there any questions that I can answer for you? Um, so yeah, at times, but not much. <laughs> no, we'll circle back to your son for a minute. How did he handle during the lockdown? Cause I know a lot of people on the spectrum have had troubles with the lockdown. Yeah, he did. Um, <clears throat> he did have a little bit of a tough time. What I did, I was very grateful to have had, you know, my education and, and training during that time because I was able to put some stuff into place that helped. If I broke his day up and I created like a visual schedule for him, like we're going to work on these things, but we're let's do it in an order and you can check off this list when you're done with these things. And, you know, you can take a brain break and do the things that you want to do. Um, that helped a lot. And then I think um, reintegrating back into school was probably a little bit harder than the actual lockdown because mm -hmm. of everybody, everything being different than when he left. Everyone was wearing masks and that just was very tough for him. Like having something on his face all day long was a little yeah. bit tough for him. 
Yeah, I noticed that there was a lot of flashback or um, lash out about people saying their children coming into school not used to work math. Some of them don't like it because of the feeling. Right. I mean, yeah, it's a tough thing. I mean, you're going from sitting in your own home comfortable doing a Zoom class to going back to school and everyone's wearing a mask and you got to wear it for eight hours a day. Yeah. You can only take it off when you eat. How did he handle all that? Was he good with it? Was he? Fighting? I don't think he loved it. He he didn't love it. Um, but he he worked through it. And now that you know the masks aren't required and things are kind of back to where they were before he left, I think he's very thankful. But um, I I know that it it really wasn't his favorite, and I notice just him being more agitated having to have something on his face all the time um but the good thing about him you i mean you gotta love him is he's just so positive about everything that he he did it and he worked through it and now you know every every day he can focus on the good and Mm -hmm. it's a very cool quality i need more of that (laughs) (laughs) i think we all need to be like that towards the positive and not look at the negative exactly i mean with the way the world's going today i think we all need some positive in our life we really do i can agree with that now what would you say the hardest part of your job is um the hardest part the hardest part of my job now um is is when I truly want to assist and, um, you know, it's hard to figure out the mechanics because right now I do, you know, virtual training um, and a lot of families, you know, it's, it's hard to make that work. If you're moving around and you have your child at home with you, sometimes it's hard to kind of sit down and, and do you know, the training. So that that part is is really tough. Um when I worked in actual ABA in a, in a center and in the hardest part was when I could see that a child needed more time and more Mm. dedicated therapy time. And their insurance company just said, no, like didn't take into account their needs. Um, They were just concerned about what the payout could be that that was the hardest part of the Mm. job. The insurance companies were, Mm -hmm word tough (laughs) yeah i understand that i mean dealing with insurance and everything when i got put on my cert i finally got a therapist and he we i went through a clinical trial program i found for autism and the medicine worked and there was an excellent therapist and then after they ended this trial because they weren't getting the results I wanted something that felt like I was on that same medicine and this therapist, like we talked, he's like, okay, I'm going to put you on Adderall that will help you with your focus. Mm. Well, dealing with the insurance company is a pain in the butt. Yeah. And if you're not familiar, if you're not, and I've learned this from talking with a friend of mine, if you're not comfortable advocating for yourself and you don't know how to talk to the insurance company and ask them the right question, you're, you're getting a runaround. Yeah. Yeah, there there was one time that I tried to independently bill insurance just just to help, you know, a family out and 
it was incredible how many different numbers I had to call and how many times I was redirected and given information and then redirected. And I said, no, that's not the right information. It's just insane. And, you know, for, for a person who's trying to advocate for themselves or for their child, it's just unacceptable. Should be easy. It should be much easier. I understand. I mean, it's money. They're trying to, they have to pay for stuff, but um, it should be easier. Now, when you have a family coming to you to look for an ABA program or even for yourself, what do you tell them about ABA? Do you explain it and break it down to them and like, this is what we're going to do and this is what's going to happen? If someone is coming to me, and I'm providing services for them. Then we sit down, we talk about what goals are going to help them and what we wanna be working on. And then I come up with a plan, a protocol, and all of our sessions are, are helping towards those goals. When they're looking for another ABA program that their child can attend in person, then I have kind of guidelines that I'm like, here's what questions I would ask if it were me as a parent going in. And here's what I would want to hear. Like I would want to hear that um, all of the treatment goals are individualized. They don't come from like a set curriculum because there are like, there's actual programs out there that have curriculums or curricula and they, they just follow that. So it's like the child will receptively identify 20 20 pictures and then the child will just like moving on and that's fine. And that's good if those programs are what's best for the child, but if they're not, um, do you have a plan in place of how to modify things? Um, so that's always one thing I always, I I look out for. And another thing is like I mentioned earlier, if, if they're willing to go out into the community, into the home, into like, if, if the child wants to participate in social activities, is the therapist able to be there um, instead of just one environment all the time? So I, I have, you know, things that I'm like, ask this question, ask about this. And and this is what I would expect to hear if, it, if it's a program I would want to be in. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> now. How hard is it when you work when you're working with someone who's nonverbal to get them to the point to where they're finally able to talk? I wouldn't say it's hard. I would say it's systematic. So it's a it's a long graduating process. And a lot of it has to do with there there's um BF Skinner who kind of is the the first person who to start implementing like an ABA. Um, he categorized verbal behavior. Like what are the different ways in which we use communication and how can we train those ways? And, and the first one that you work on is called a mand, or it's like, it's a request asking for something. That's how we get command, um, demand. It's all like, mm-hmm. it's an attempt to get, and, that's obviously the most motivating. So the way that I approach language is it's not that I want to teach the child to talk. It's that I want the child to want to talk or want to communicate and realize that there's a value in doing it. Like if I 
work on this, this benefits me because otherwise we're pushing an agenda on someone that is not something they're asking for. They're not asking to be taught how to talk. They need to see the value and want to learn. So I start always with um, something called like man training where all we're doing is we're in a play environment and I try to bring things that that child was really going to enjoy and really going to love. So if the child loves bubbles, I hold the bubbles and I will blow the bubbles and try to teach the child how to ask me how to do that. So Mm. they're getting something they really, really want. And they're noticing, hey, when I interact with you and I say something to you that produces something that's good for me. And I, I think that's where things get switched up in a lot of ABA programs, it's like the parent wants the child to talk. So we're going to work on this way of trying to get them to talk. I don't think that is the first goal. The first goal is let's teach this child that there's value to talking and value to communicating. And then from there, I mean, it's just very systematic steps when the child starts to learn like, Hey, language is good. I like it. Then we start to train Here's all the ways that you can use your language. Here's how you label things that you see. Here's how you, you know, interverbal, we exchange, you know, different phrases and create a conversation. Um, All of those are really great and good. But step one is, you know, creating the motivation, Mm -hmm. knowing that it's for something. So like if you, if a client wanted water, you kind of teach them, you at if you ask me for the water you get rewarded with the water yes but not in a way that um that would ever deny access to things that they water. they really need yeah. like if, if they yeah, need I water understand. they need water they they, they yeah. can have the water but um i might you know if they want to go swimming or they want to you know different ways yeah. to get things that they want not necessarily a need but um If I were to start to teach them what water is, like if they need the water, I give it to them and I can like tell them that that is water because eventually at some point, if the water is not in sight, I want them to still know how to ask me for it. Like if we're out and in the car and my child is thirsty, but there's no water around, I would want him to be able to say, I'm thirsty, I need water or something, something like that. But I I always typically start with toys, with videos, Mm -hmm. things that aren't an essential, but things that the child might really want. I mean, I can see how important that is because when you get that want, that ask for the want, it's they realize they get rewarded by asking. Exactly. And And in their mind, that registers to them, oh, I can, if I ask and if I verbalize, I'm able to express what I want. And I get it instead of pointing to something by verbally saying something. Now, do you have clients who almost have trouble getting that word out because they have never spoken? At times, but there's lots of cool ways to, to help with that. So you can use two different communication styles Um, if you're building up one or the other. So for my son, when he started, he, um, he was starting by 
using a, a communication device and he would listen to videos and he would pick mm-hmm. up words there, but he was not quite getting that these words and these phrases, I can also say them and, and get an outcome. But when he learned how to use a device, he would press a button and the button would say the word and he could repeat it. And he started to learn like, Hey, I can just say it. So you, if a child hasn't talked before, then there's lots of things that you could do to practice and still work on communication. Um, I think people get wary of, of communication devices uh, because it, it feels like they they're giving up, like they're resigning to the fact that their child mm-hmm. won't talk. But in all honesty, like it, it helped my son just to start talking because he was hearing those words over and over and he felt more comfortable saying them when he could hear them more. Yeah. I talked with a guest who works with getting those devices out to the kids mm-hmm. and how important it is because the, they get the software, they get the iPad with the specialized software that has all the vocabulary. And I can understand how important the, that device is. If you're nonverbal, the whole, the world must, feel different to you yeah i mean your son must when he was younger he it must have felt weird for him hear all these people talk and i get bet you inside he just wanted to say but he somewhere inside he couldn't yeah i i definitely felt for him because when he was nonverbal, he was overstimulated a lot Mm. and I think it's because um, part of it is like exactly like you're saying, you you can hear everything people are saying, mm-hmm. but it's hard to process what those words mean. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to feel like you can participate in it when you can't say it yourself. And I really did feel for him in that time. And that's I think that's why I wanted to get the training that I wanted to get, because whether or not he actually spoke a word in his life. That part wasn't as concerning to me. What what I was concerned with is how are you heard? How are you like, how do you communicate yourself to me or to people that you want to be heard with? So, you know, I was, I was willing to try pretty much anything. I, we tried pecs and those darn things. I mean, I, it's a great system, but if you lose one or if you, you don't have a peck for something that he needed, it was tough, but the device did help him quite a bit. I've always wondered what in the autism world made, how do you wind up nonverbal? Is it just yeah. you're afraid to talk and stimulation or what is it? There are different diagnoses that sometimes do go hand in hand with autism. And one of them is apraxia. Um, apraxia of speech is uh, a diagnosis for when there, the connection of your receptive language mm-hmm. going to your expressive language, there's something that gets very mixed up. So you can hear and understand language, but it, it, creates kind of a jumble and you can't speak it. You can't get it out. Um, we thought that my son had that. He, he ended up not. Um, but I think that, um, it's, it's like a, it's like a balance, right? So you, 
your, your level or where you are on the spectrum might have to do with all kinds of things. I mean, there's, there's a lot that was going on. It was, he was getting chronic ear infections Mm -hmm. and we think that inflammation in the eardrum could have prevented him from hearing or even be being able to create it's no one really knows for a fact what puts a person on one end of the spectrum or, or in the middle or anywhere else. But there are a lot of things coming out about, um, inflammation in like the brain inflammation in the body and how that increases a lot of, of autism type of characteristics. And I, you know, I will say, and this might not be applicable for everyone, but when I started paying attention to what my son was eating Mm-hmm. and making sure that his his nutrition was up to par he had a lot of changes in his vocabulary and in his speech so i think it's it's being conscientious of your whole body not just your output and your behavior but what's going on mm-hmm. in, with all within you cuz there could be a million things as to why a child's not talking so you got to you got to play like that that old show house where the the doctor mm-hmm. like was always you know it went through a million different things before he could figure it out you almost yeah. have to do that with with everyone everyone has their own makeup and um what could be going on with one might not be the same for someone else i mean i've always been an advocate ever since i found out i have autism about listening to your body Mm-hmm. because I have a friend who's like, how can you be this way? And so on and so forth. <clears throat> you are so on this fence of you're not even don't have all the, all the things, all the traits. And I'm like, well, the problem, the, the thing is I listen to my body. I know when I'm overtired. I know when I'm overstimulated and I know when I feel certain things, I know it's time for me to step back. Like when I'm at a party, I know when I'm overstimulated, I find a quiet place to go mm-hmm. before my mind snaps and I have a meltdown. Yep. I found that with myself as well. Um, this is when I start to realize, you know, I have a lot of these characteristics myself. And it, one of the biggest ones was like the grocery store. I can't do the grocery store. And even like, we just went to go get like teething toys for my baby. And even the few amount of people in there, I was just getting very overwhelmed because you have to consider like where your body placement is and your cart and like the different sounds. And there's always music playing in it. So I, when I would have to go shopping on my own, I wear headphones. I do something that kind of Mm -hmm. blocks it out so I can be focused on what I'm there to do. Um, and at first I thought, you know, like, is this something I don't like, but no, that's just, that's just the way I receive stimuli. And I just need to be conscientious of that. We all have our, our things. Well, they've always said that the autism is hereditary in the fact that you either get it from your mother or your father. So maybe you could be on the spectrum. Have you thought about getting yourself tested? Um, I've done self tests. I mean, at, at this point, if I've, you know, been through, um, you know, the, the education that I have and, um, it's, it's more, there's not really a ton of treatment for people my age with my mm-hmm. type of characteristics. So I haven't thought about 
getting myself, you know, clinically diagnosed because there, there's not a lot out there for me at this point, but I do, um, self tests and self evaluations and I do meet the criteria. And, um, what's funny about genetics and hereditary, um, is that that is, it's like one small part of it. I follow um, Dr. Mark Hyman and he does like a lot on functional medicine. And if you consider, you know, the prevalence of autism where a couple decades ago, we're looking at one in 5,000 children might have it. Now we're looking at like one in 44 genetics, just they don't change that fast. Like they, they can't evolve to, for it to be, you know, hardly anyone to now almost everyone, like it, it doesn't, it doesn't add up, but what does add up is, if you share genetics, like my son and I, um, if I'm sensitive to something in the environment and I'm sensitive to something in my diet and I'm sensitive to certain stimuli, it's likely that he would be sensitive to those things too. So the same things that would cause inflammation for me are, mm-hmm. are highly likely. So for instance, I, I tested um, going off of gluten and this isn't right for everyone. I'm not saying everyone should be on a gluten-free diet. <laughs> I'm saying like, for me, I noticed a high amount of irritability, um, you know, much more fatigue, dark circles around my eyes when I was eating it. And then I also noticed the same with Caden, but with, um, you know, it being him being so young and not being able to articulate every feeling that he might have and every you know, frustration he might have, it just, it comes off as overstimulation. It comes off mm-hmm. as having a meltdown and really his body's just trying to process through, um, the things that I also can't tolerate. So genetics are a huge part of it. And yeah, I do, I do consider myself probably somewhere on the spectrum. I just, <laughs> I haven't tried to get diagnosed cause there's no, there's no therapy for 36 year old BCBAs who discover they have it. (laughs) Now, what is your feeling about masking in uh, trying to pretend you're somebody you're not? Are you for it? Are you against it? Always against. Um, Because I say this with experience because Mm -hmm. I, you know, I grew up very different. I went to a very small private private Catholic school and everybody seemed the same. And I seemed very different. So I lived a lot of my life, um, just trying to fit in the best that I could. And it's very, not only is it, is it very, um, taxing on yourself. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of your energy and it never, it never really works anyway, because you know, what people think is cool or what people think is acceptable is highly depending on whatever group and it changes all the time. You might as well just be yourself, you know, (laughs) (laughs) you you might as well just do what you're going to do and be, because at least you feel true to yourself. I think the, the biggest feeling for me was when I was doing those things, I just felt a betrayal to myself. And I don't ever want my child to feel that way. You know, my, my son, at 10 years old, you know, he loves to film air conditioners. He has a collection of fire alarms that he, he knows every make and model of them. 
I don't ever want That's him to. That's his special interest right there. He is his special, very special interest. And he loves, he's so passionate. And like he doesn't spend a single minute of his day doing something unproductive. It's always for these things that are of his interest. I would never want him to lose that because like the 20 to 25 kids in his one classroom don't think it's cool. You know, it's yeah, no. might as well just be who we're going to be. <laughs> I mean, I've talked with many people and they've all said that their sons or their husbands who are on the spectrum come home exhausted and have to find a place to melt to mellow out for at least 45 minutes. And I'm thinking to myself, why? It's not even worth masking if you have to come home and unwind for that long in the place of quietness. No. I've been against masking for the longest time because as many people say, why shouldn't we hide our uniqueness? Exactly. And the world has plenty of of people who are going to belong to a certain group or look a certain way. Mm -hmm. We do better as a community when everyone is a little bit different and everybody has a different, you know, perspective and anyone has a a different skill to to offer up and you know we we really can't thrive as a whole if everybody is trying to do the same thing i don't believe in in normalizing things because Mm. everybody you know whether they fit into a group or whether they fit into what looks normal or not that's going to change like next year, someone decided for women that having really big eyebrows, like having patient <laughs> on eyebrows is cool. Like who, and that's going to change. Like, so all of, all of your energy, there's this part of a movie. I might be completely like out, like nerding, whatever, but there is this part in this movie called the X-Men first class. And the one mystique who could like shape change she could like become anybody and she's like trying to lift weights and she can't do it because she was using all of her energy trying to look like a normal person instead of just her her typical form i know that's like a lot of detail but i think about that all the time like if we were to use our energy just by doing what we do better instead of trying to look like everybody else you know we'd be much better off that's a much better use of our energy And finally, what would you tell people who are looking to find into ABA and and are skeptical about it? What would you tell them? Keep your your skepticism. Always, you know, you look out for the best interest of your child. What I love to tell parents more than anything else is that your gut, like you you are biologically programmed to be this child's parent. So if something in your gut Mm -hmm. says, this isn't right, you're probably right. And you should figure out what that is. Um, We all of us people who have the credentials and we have the fancy diplomas and we do the, the fancy therapies, we know the practice, you know your child. And if something is not right for you, you don't have to be able to explain it. You can just say, this doesn't feel right to me. And um, always be educated on what the therapy should be doing, how it should look, and watch, pay attention to your child. Like, make sure that that person is respecting 
your child's dignity and their uniqueness. And that's it, everyone. Thank you for another episode of Inside the Asperger Studios. Thank you, Melissa, for a wonderful show. Thank you for having me. This is so much fun. And I'll see you on the next one, everyone. Just the way things used to be I'm no big fan of now I must have some sweeter memories Somewhere in the cloud Welcome to the new normal Welcome to the new normal Welcome to the new normal Shout Welcome to the new normal Gonna miss all you used to be Gonna miss all you had Consigned to the dustbins of history Like opinions from your dead Talk to the freaks. You can talk to just about anybody you happen to meet. It ain't what it was, and it is what it is.